What's happening in the canine industry? For all the latest news, views and expert opinions, stay right here for the canine paradigm. You'll hear from industry leaders, experts, doyens of the industry, learned colleagues, movers and shakers, and the odd Randy guest. Get the latest insights and expert advice from both here and abroad from the people in the know. Now, here are your hosts, Glenn Cook and Pat Stewart. And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Hey, Glenn, we've got to do a new ad, mate. We do. We're long overdue. We're not going to be sponsoring Einzerwiener anymore. Yeah, well, fuck no longer. He's fucking not paying us. <laughs> no. We've just figured out. No, we just, we... He's sitting right here in front of us, <laughs> and we've just figured out he hasn't actually been paying all no this time. No wonder there's no bread and milk on my table fuck in this house. After we were just nice to him. <laughs> we're just, fuck him. We were just flattering him. We were just whining and dining him, <laughs> looking after him like a big fucking client. We'd look after and then we find out he hasn't find been paid out he the hasn't bill. Been paying us. the bed. He's doing it right now, so we, <laughs> we may as well tell people if they're in Australia and you need dog gear. Don't get it from him. Well, get it from wait, him. Wait until he pays the get bill. Get it from him so that he can pay us. <laughs> What's your stupid website, Jason? E-I-N-Z-W-E-C-K.com. There you go. Get your stuff from there. Okay. All right, on to the real sponsors. Yes, the people who actually pay the bills. Canine suticles. Yep. The best canine suticles. Premium grade, yep. human quality. Yeah. It's going gangbusters at the moment. Thank you to the community who have been supporting yeah. it. It's great shit. Dan Croft. Yes. In Canada. In Canada. Yes. Toronto, Canada, I believe. Yeah. Yes. What were we pushing for him? It's puppy class. Puppy class. Yeah. Amazing puppy classes in a great facility. Barbara de Groot. From the heart dog training. Barbara just loves us. And we she love just Barbara. loves us. Barbara is our sugar mama. <laughs> yeah. That literally is the things called, right? Yeah. The tear that she called. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The sugar mama tear. Thank you, Barbara. We appreciate Thank you, Barbara. you. We love you. Horny George Kittredge. Yes. Rowdy Hound Dog Boxers. Yeah. yeah. The box is incredible. I saw it for the. Did we talk about this? Have we done an we ad have. since? We yeah. have talked about how amazing the boxes is. You and I traveled from. Where did you pick us up? What, what airport? That was, was that? Uh, in Colorado. Colorado. We he showed us the prototype. Yeah. We was talking through it. You and I were sort of thinking, this is never going to take off. Yeah. And finally. He does it. He pulls it off. Not only does he pull it off, it's fucking brilliant. Like it's safe. And he also does classes where he teaches people how to use them as well. Like teaches the dogs how to get up on the bike seat and then load into the box itself. And it's bloody brilliant. It's incredible. Really proud of George. Lovely guy. And I'm really happy that this is paying out for him. All right. Daniel Trapino? It's actually Tropiano. He corrected me. Okay. So anyway, Daniel Trapino. Dog Club, Dog Club Australia. Australia. Yeah. It's a cool little facility he's got there. It's a there. great facility. Get yes. in, check it out. He does all the, all the training. Yeah, he's decked it out. He's got it all looking schmick. It's a bit street. It's a bit edge. It's a bit kitschy. You yeah, know? he's got some cool artwork. Yeah, and it stuff looks good. There. Check yeah. it out for yeah, sure. It's great. It's about time South Australia started lifting its game. Good on you, Daniel. Yeah, leading the charge down there. Well done. We've got a new one. Who we got? Tailored Canines. We have too. They contacted us on Instagram, yep. stumbled into our advertising <laughs> tier, and away <laughs> we go. Yep. So they're in Canada. They are. They're in Ontario. Gold, Nipopo gold people, yeah, gold multiplicators. I think, I think they're a gold multiplicator. Yep. yep. So if you're recently certified as a silver school and you're mm-hmm. looking for somewhere to do your gold yep. and you're around the Canada or just anywhere up that northern part of the Americas, Check it out. Tell so they the do puppy, adult group classes, private and board and train programs. There you go. Tell so the thank you for jumping on and advertising with us. Hey, everyone. 
If you would like to be an advertiser, <laughs> don't do it. Reach out to us. Shut up, you bullfed. So I know that on Patreon, and we appreciate people just putting money in there. That's wonderful. Yes. But we do have to limit how many people we have. And so get in contact with us. Make sure that we actually can serve you and that we actually, you know, can provide you value as an advertiser. And that you align with our ethos as well. Of that, course. That's very important. That would be appreciated. To recap. Our sponsors are, and the people we love because they give us a lot of money. Yes. Well, it's not a lot of money, but some money. Yeah. Einzewick, he promises he's going to do it. He's, look, I'm looking at him now. I'm looking at the reflection of him fixing Has it. Has that gone through yet? No, because still trying. Has got shit <laughs> Dan Croft, puppy classes, yep. cool facility. Barber de Groot. Amazing sugar mama. Love her. From the hot dog training. George Kittridge. Rowdy Hound Dog Boxes. Daniel Tropiano. Tropiano. Tro- dog clubs. Troppy <laughs> Daniel. <laughs> dog clubs in Australia. <laughs> yeah. And new to the family, tailored canines. Yeah. All the way from Ontario, Canada. So we've got two Canadians. That'll do advertising. Yeah. Mo- do. Mostly from the United States. One from Oz. Well done. Well played. Thank you, sirs and madam. Check them out. They support us. Yeah. You should support them. Yep. Here's a show. There's a show now. Here's a show. Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. I'm your host, Pat Stewart. I'm joined by my co-host, Glenn Cook. And joining us all the way from the US is Tracy Rasich, which I have hopefully pronounced correctly. I had 25 practices before we started recording, but I'm still not convinced. Tracy, welcome to the show. Hi, how are you guys doing? Pretty good. Yeah, very well. Thank you. Was it two episodes ago, we spoke about you a lot and now we're talking to you. Great. <laughs> so you have started a Facebook group. How long has that group been running, Tracy? I think we're probably going on three years now. Wow. Okay, cool. Yeah. Started yeah. during COVID, right? Like there's a bit yes. of a support sort of yes. thing. Yes. Yeah. I started it because my background is in horse training. And when I used to compete a lot, there's a little building that's usually by the in gate where they tell you what order of go you're in, who's next, this type of thing. And they would kind of jokingly call it the horse trainer's lounge because we were right. always in and out checking out. And, and that was where the good conversations happened. And when I first got into the dog training groups on Facebook, I, I just noticed that there was no middle ground really between uh, the groups that just took everything really, really seriously and the groups that were like the Wild West. I mean, you couldn't bring up anything without everybody going into a, mm-hmm. a disaster, you know, and, and they were just got, it's kind of like junk food, you know, you'd get really into it in the beginning. It was very satisfying. And then it just felt really icky and dirty. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, sure. I just wanted to start something that was more along the lines of just professionals together, just at the end of the day, talking about their stuff, you know? Yeah, cool. It certainly has the vibe as though you've, you've pulled that off. It certainly oh, it feels that way. And so a few weeks ago, you made a post that we did a whole episode on. We spoke about that sort of at length. And we reached out because I thought it'd be a good idea to get you on the show to sort of put some backstory, some context to all of that. Because I realized like, while I see some of your stuff online and, and I enjoy that group, and I have to admit, I don't contribute that much, but we can get into why that is sort of as we talk through. I wanted to know more about you. I wanted to know how did we get to this point? How is it that you made that post? And how is it that you even came into the industry at all? So wind us all the way back and okay. tell us how this all came to be. Sure. So uh, to go way back, I grew up in a military family and I lived in six countries before I was in high school. And Mm. as the two of you definitely know, meeting lots and lots of people, when people come in and out of your life a lot, you really get either very standoffish or you're very good at 
sort of categorizing people and making, you know, you learn about people quickly mm. and you learn who is worth getting to know and you recognize patterns in people. So it's not that you become judgmental. It's just like, for an example, for me, if I meet someone and they immediately just talking, start talking ugly about, you know, their last trainer or their neighbor or something, I just kind of remember that that's probably mm. not the person I want to get to know too much because I don't like that. You know, I mean, once you get to know people, of course, we all talk a little bit of stuff about people. But when it when people just start that way, that's just kind of an example of things I've learned just from living lots of places. So and actually, uh, Australia, I lived in Australia for two years. Um, oh, really? Growing up. Yes. My dad was stationed at a missile launching station called Woomera. Oh, yeah. I don't know. Okay. Uh, normally, when I tell people from Australia that I lived there, they get really excited and they ask where and I say Wilmer and they're like, oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but I was a very adventurous kid. And I, I loved living there. I loved going out in the desert. And it's a miracle I survived, to be honest, because I was just always flipping over rocks and checking stuff out and catching lizards and just stuff like that. Yeah. So I really, really enjoyed Australia. Just messy so, with our biodiversity. Yes. Yes. <laughs> anyway, pretty much same story as lots of trainers, just animal crazy kind of person. Just love to see if you could get the stray cat to respond to you, you know, just stuff like that, you know, but mm -hmm. my love was horses. I really always wanted to be a horse trainer. I really loved my niche. There was show jumping. And if you know anything about show jumping, it's very, very expensive. So as I got older and into it, I why is that? Because I do know nothing about show jumping. Mm. So why is it so expensive? What, what causes I that? I think it's just sort of an, an elite sport. It takes to be at a high level, an animal that's like a freak of nature. I mean, you really, you could breed and breed and breed and there's not going to be a lot of horses. I mean, it, just like with the dogs, the breeding has gotten very specialized over the years. So you get a higher number of them that can compete at an international level. But it still takes a long time to train the horses and it's very prestigious. So people like to own them. So you really can't touch a high level show jumper for under a quarter of a million dollars. And then it just wow. goes to the roof from there. But I, what is that, it about a horse like that? Like, is it its structure, like the way it's put together? Or is it more about its willingness? Of course, it's going to be both. But mm -hmm. is it more the body or the mind of the horse that's making it suitable for that? Well, again, similar to the, the sport dogs, the real advanced breeding has always come from Europe. So it's very specialized breeding. So you're looking for a horse that is game, has the real desire to leave the ground and, and jump these obstacles. But they also need to have the parts. They physically mm -hmm. need to be able to do it because it's it's something that your average horse really can't do. I mean, most horses on the planet could jump, you know, a three foot jump. But when you're talking about a meter 50, a meter mm. 60, I mean, these are really big jumps. And this, mm. so it takes very specialized breeding to get a horse that can do that. But okay. just like anything, there's all different levels underneath it, right? So when I first got into the the horses, I just learned pretty quick that if I wanted to do it, I needed to work. I needed to be a working student or I needed to work at a farm or, or something like that, which I did. And again, back to learning about different groups of people, I saw that the poor kids like myself were either you were jealous and a little bitter about not having the money to get there, or you just put your head down and you worked hard and you observed everybody and you really tried to see how I can get there without the money. I tried to be that one. I tried to really learn as much as I could I went to a four-year university to 
that I, I, I majored in uh, equestrian studies and business. And, and again, it, when I graduated, I noticed some people went right into horse training. They put their shingle up. Now I'm a horse trainer. And then other people just went right to apprenticeship. So I said, I want to do that. I want to go find the best barn I can work at for the most knowledgeable people. And I was kind of a slave for a couple of years. You know, I worked mm-hmm. for almost nothing, uh, groomed, clean stalls, tacked up, rode, whatever they would give me to ride, uh, broke colts, you know, the, all the stuff that people don't want to do once they get to a certain level. And from there, I just climbed the ladder. I was a groom. I was a manager. I took care of things. Then I was an assistant trainer at a barn where I was had a, a like a B string of horses to compete on. So that was really nice because I got in the in the show ring a lot. I was uh, probably at a normal horse show. I would get in the ring 20, 30, even 40 times a day. Wow. So lots of times getting in front of a judge and to the point where you're just, it doesn't bother you at all anymore. And especially when there's no pressure on you because your horses aren't that great. You know, the second tier horses, <laughs> uh, nobody's expecting anything from you. So if you do win, everybody's really excited. If you don't, nobody even cares. It's not a problem. Yeah, right. And then from there, I started my own business and I had a, a nice business with great clients. And But that is what spawned this this whole idea I had when I was writing this post is in the horse business, most people that train horses train competitive horses. It's not backyard horses. It's usually people that are looking to compete. And so when you go to a lot of horse shows and there's a community of trainers, one of the things uh, one of my bosses told me is the customers are going to come and go. The trainers are always going to be there. So if you want to do business with people, if you want to learn from people, you got to get along with everybody. So there's certain things that I learned, like if a client calls you that rides with another trainer, you don't even discuss anything with that person. Your first question is, have you talked to your trainer to tell them there's a problem? And if they say no, you say, call me after you've talked to your trainer. And that's it. Otherwise, you're in danger of looking like you're poaching clients and that type of mm-hmm. thing. So things like that, that I learned as a horse trainer, I feel like is missing in a lot of people that train dogs. They're not getting that mentorship of the business side of it and how to handle and have relationships with other trainers. And the other part that was different is your results are there for everybody to see. So you are winning in front of your friends. You are getting bucked off in front of your friends. You are having a bad day. You're getting yelled at by your clients. Do you know what I mean? You're going through all of the things out in the open. And so there's not a lot of hiding your abilities. I mean, some people are better than others at kind of polishing a turd a little bit, but for the most part, there's no hiding it. Your results are there. And if you're there for a while, there's the consistency of the results are there. So that's very, very important if you want to be successful. You know, with horses, your clients are with you for years. You know, with the dogs, they're there for weeks or months, usually, unless you're doing sports or something like that. So Mm -hmm. again, another difference that I noticed with the dogs, I got into the, the dog training because I got married. My husband's a veterinarian and we were both in the same business. He he works on sport horses and sports medicine uh, veterinarian. And when we started a family, I didn't want to be on the road all the time. I didn't want to be on the show circuit training and, and trying to raise kids at the same time. So I wanted to commit to the kids. So I took a few years off. We moved into a neighborhood off the farm and I had my farm dogs with me. So I had my Australian cattle dog and she was always with me, never on a leash. I would go running and she was with me. And after a while, just person after person was always asking, oh, how does she stay with you? Why is she so good? And I just thought, I don't know. She just likes me, I guess. She just, I couldn't lose her if I tried. But again, you look for patterns. You see 
that there's a business there. And so mm-hmm. I really started just practicing on neighbor dogs and eventually just started charging a little here and there. And from my background with the horses, I thought, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm not going to charge people a lot of money for this. I need to be able to prove that I can do what I'm doing. And I really didn't. I mean, I had a very, very easy dog to train. Actually, this is funny. The first client I ever had that paid me by trading my business cards and my logos, they made those for me and I trained their dog. Their dog was a a border collie mix. It was a piece of cake. I felt like a genius when I was done with it because they were so happy. The dog was super easy. And then my second client were littermate intact English bulldogs. (laughs) And it was like, it brought me right back down. I'm like, oh, I guess it's a little different with different breeds. And so then another learning lesson, you know, lesson there about uh, this is a little different. I'm not dealing with specifically bred animals that are mm. that are always going to be, you know, what I need them to be. So again, learning, I was going into people's homes, just dealing with the basic pulling on the leash problems and stuff like that. And, you know, it made me a little uncomfortable sometimes when people would say, oh, you're the dog whisperer. I can't believe it's so much better. And I really wasn't doing anything very special. I just knew how to handle animals. And I always thought, boy, there's a lot of people training dogs that are getting hold they're a genius, you know, when this is not much, you know, I'm not doing much for these dogs, you know, and so I kind of was looking to see how I could learn a little bit more and be more than just provide results I was happier with. The clients were happy enough, especially since I wasn't charging very much. So I met a girl named Gina Pfeffer, who does Schutzend and IGP or whatever they call it now. And she was a horse trainer too before. And I got to know her and she was doing uh, training service dogs for veterans and doing the sport on the side. And, and one day she called me and she said, I've got my my friend uh, Fabian Robinson is coming from New York and he coaches me in my uh, at dog trials and stuff, but he's a really good pet dog trainer too. So if you want to come over, you know, let me know. So I said, absolutely. So I called all of my clients and I said, if you want to pay for a session with this guy, come watch, I'll work the dog, he'll coach me and we'll all learn something together. And uh, so I had a bunch of clients that did that and we had a good time. And Fabian was really kind of life-changing for me because the first dog I handled, the owner's right there, I'm right there. And he looks at me and he goes, you have no relationship with this dog. And I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> but I want, it kind of made me sit up and I said, okay, this guy's going to tell me something I need to hear. And he really helped me a lot. It kind of, I changed kind of everything I did with the dogs at that point. And developed, uh, you know, I, I just took from it what I could use. You know, I wasn't trying to mimic him because I was never going to be him. Uh, sure. But again, back to the horse world, we used to do clinics all the time. We would have our, our horse show association would bring in, you know, the person that was just a medalist at the Olympics or something like that. And we would do it like that. You would ride the client horse, take a lesson with them. Then the client would ride the horse the next day and take a lesson with the same guy. And again, we'd all learn something you're out there learning things, you're not it. Nobody expected you to know everything. So Mm. to the dogs, I feel like there's a lot of people out there training dogs that through no fault of their own, because they're being reinforced by these, you know, the clients that really don't know anything. And Mm. so you look like the, what do they call it? The, uh, in the land of the blind, the one man is king, right? You're somebody that knows a little bit of something. And so these trainers get fed this unearned, status, you know, and so why would they want to if, you know, if I don't know if I hadn't had my background in the horses, if I would have been so eager, you know, it's possible that when Fabian said, I don't have a relationship with the dog, I might have just gotten offended Mm. and not shut down. 
so that kind of brings us up to here <laughs> where yeah, uh, these are the conversations that we have. That's know. a really interesting thought process that you have. It's not something that I would have thought of doing in that if you're going to see the expert in getting your clients to pay for the sessions, you handling the dog and doing that in front of them, upskilling yourself, the dog and them in all in one go. And to hear you say that that's a, a common practice in the horse world, I'm not familiar with anybody. Nobody's ever done that with me. I've never done that with anyone in dogs. Certainly I've referred people on and I've been the next step in referrals to people, but I've never had it that the client handles the dogs. I've had Zoom calls where you know a trainer and a client might have issues. They'll book a session with me and all three of them be there so that they can all work through it. But to look at it, not just as a way to solve the problem with the dog or the animal, but to also upskill yourself it's pretty unique. I haven't haven't experienced much of that. When you sort of came into dogs and you noticed this, that a little bit of knowledge went a really long way with the average pet dog owner. Mm-hmm. Was there any sort of, oh, great, this is going to be easy? Or was that for you straight away just like, no, I definitely need to keep upskilling? Or was there any temptation to just stay in that easy space? No, it made me uncomfortable. Yeah. Okay. I really didn't <laughs> like it. I, I just felt like I, it was unearned. You know, I mean, I remember one of the first clients I had had a golden retriever that was just doing normal jumping on the counter, stuff like that. And the whole family is staring at me like so expectant and I'm sweating. I mean, I had coached kids that are coached amateurs and, and juniors at a national level. I was an experienced coach and I'm standing there in this person's living room, like nervous because I think there's. I don't really know what to do with this dog. I know what I would do if he was mine, but they aren't dog trainers. They aren't, they don't have the skills. You know, I could walk up to the dog and do a a Caesar Milan, you know, snap my fingers at it. He would get down and back out of the kitchen, but that's not them. I knew that wasn't going to last after I left. And so that was the main thing is, is things that would last and is worth what these people are spending. Mm. You know, people are paying you their money and it should last. It should be something they can rely on. No. I suppose one of the biggest differences, again, thinking out loud, because you know I don't have experience with the horse world, but I think exactly that. You triggered me to think of it when you say you're in these people's homes. I suppose when you're working as a horse trainer and coaching people through working with their horse, you're probably, and totally correct me if I'm off base here, but you're probably much less involved in their lives and their day-to-day than you are as a dog trainer. I think that was one of the things that confronted me quite a lot when I first started training pets. And similar to you, I started out just with people in the area, people who saw me with my dog and, uh, yep, no worries. And you meet them at the place where you met them anyway. And it was a while before you start going into people's homes. And I remember being, it was a long time ago, but I remember thinking like, well, this is uncomfortable. Like I'm a stranger (laughs) in this person's house telling them that they're living, they're going to have to not just change training of the dog, but change the way they live. I remember the first time I ever told someone like, you have to change the layout of this house. Like that's an inappropriate place for your crate. It was a reactive dog that could see from his crate out the front window. And they lived on a reasonably busy street and that had a bike lane. And so there were constantly bikes going past. And of course the dog's losing its mind at the, like, of course the dog's barking at these bikes that go past. What else is going to happen? And I was like, no, you have to change that. And they're like, oh, but that's the layout. And I remember sort of standing there thinking like, wow, I'm I'm an interior decorator now. This is weird. Was that confronting to you or maybe you are more involved with people in the horse space? Yeah, actually with the horses, the horses would all live where I was training. 
So mm-hmm. when I was training, I, I trained out of a, a 90 stall training facility with a bunch of other trainers and the trainers all lived with me. The horses were more mine than theirs. They yeah. would I saw their horses more than they did. Because they're with you for years, you really develop a very strong relationship with them. And you're basically raising their kids when you coach the junior riders. And it is a very intimate relationship for sure. And you try to keep them at arm's length. I mean, when I was at the horse shows, the, the trainers and I, we would always say to the clients, you've got one night to have dinner with us, you know, like other than that, we're going with the other trainers or we're having night to ourselves or something. So it it is a very close thing. And and I did notice with dog clients, I enjoy getting to know new people and I didn't mind that part at all. And there were some people I know that that would just keep re-upping training because I could tell they just wanted someone to walk their dog with and they wanted someone mm-hmm. to chat with and stuff. And sometimes you got to cut loose of those types that are a little clingy. But yeah, sometimes you're a marriage counselor, sometimes you're all of those things, right? I was listening to you talking about how it took you by surprise and you felt a little guilty and a little bit, I don't want to throw words in your mouth, but a little fraudulent in when people were giving you compliments and calling you a guru and a legend and a whisperer and so forth. (laughs) From my own experiences over time, I found that I too was uncomfortable when people first started saying that to me, but then I started to feel it as a narcotic. I kind of needed it and I liked it and I liked the feeling that I was getting when people were talking to me and saying those very high-level complimentary phrases like I was a god or a guru or a whisperer or something like that. I see it a lot in the industry at the moment, and I'm sure that ticks somebody's bingo card, but I'm sure <laughs> in the how industry. How funny was that post? That was hilarious. By the way, how <laughs> funny was hilarious. that? Hilarious. I appreciated that. <laughs> I, very I was doing the toilet scene this morning and, and flicking and reading it all and laughing hysterically at some of the comments <laughs> people had. There's so, going to be so many drunk people by the end of this episode. <laughs> Back to that, though, I see that there is a lot of people, and I guess this is where there is a struggle in the industry with trainers is there's a lot of people with fragile egos who also need that. And when they get it, they too start to rise and the little ego demon starts to take control of them. Cause it certainly did with me. I've, I've spoken of it multiple times where I suffered from an extensive ego because people were complimenting me all the time. It was just every time I turn up, I'd get showered in praise and then people wanted to work their dogs with me all the time. And I thought, oh my God, I am I am a living embodiment of a God walking this earth to train people's dogs. And I see that with other, and I will say this, and it sounds a little scorning, but there's some really unremarkable people out there who don't do great jobs with people's dogs, but they're getting told mm-hmm. that they do because the introduction that people have and seeing that person with their dog and seeing that they can make a change with that dog, even though, like I said, and I know this sounds a little uncomplimentary, but I've seen their work. I know the level of their work. I've seen what they're reducing the dogs to because some of those dogs come to me for backup or they come to my colleagues for backup when things really don't work out the way they do. But then these people did the same thing I did. They are hitched to the fact that they are somewhat better than they really are because people keep showering them with that praise. In Australia, there's a term called the tall poppy syndrome and what mm-hmm. that primarily means is anybody who starts standing out gets their head cut off like a tall poppy. There's a funny thing with Australians where we kind of feel like nobody should ever get ahead or be better than the rest of us. It's kind of like a communistic approach to things is that mm-hmm. you should stay the same and you should not be better than the other people. Fundamentally, I don't agree with it, but there's been times where I've advocated it myself and I've kind of looked at it thinking, 
The only reason you're advocating that is because you're jealous. That's really the primary reason that you're doing that is because you're jealous. You're just being jealous that somebody has grown more than you, they're hungrier than you are, they're more ambitious than you are, they've collected information and they've become talented through their hard work and perseverance and they're a good study. They're passionate about it. They've just worked harder than you have. Why would you be jealous of a person that did all of that hard work and all that preparedness and became something of measure why wouldn't you get behind them and say, this is a good person for our industry? Because on one right. hand, you're scorning the person who is taking on this egotistical, fictitious belief, and yet you have got somebody who aspires to what you think is appropriate and you still want to cut their head off. So right. how the fuck does somebody get ahead? How does somebody persevere in this industry? How does somebody do well when you're not advocating for the person who is doing everything that ticks all the boxes in your category? Do you get the same sort of thing in the horse world as well? well? Sorry, just before you answer oh, that question, okay. there's an observation that I've had, and I'm not necessarily saying that it's a fact because it's still a limited observation, but I don't see the tall poppy syndrome in America as much as I do in Australia. I see that it does exist to a degree, but I also see more support for people in America and more rallying behind people in America than I do in mm-hmm. Australia. What's your observation? You're a native of that country. What do you see? Yeah. Well, first of all, I heard you talk about that a couple episodes ago, and I thought you said tall puppy. And I was thinking, (laughs) huh, I wonder what that's about. Like, is that like a neutering thing? Or I don't understand what's the tall puppy. (laughs) So anyways, I get it now, now that you've explained it. It's a flower, not a dog. Yes. (laughs) So no, I don't see that as much in in the horses, mainly because, again, you have to have your results in front of people. And you can say in the type of horses that I trained, there were two types of horses. There's show jumping horses, which competed only on if they got faults jumping and the speed that they went at. So it didn't matter what it looked like. It is what it is. The other one are called hunters and hunters. They're being judged on the judge's opinion about their way of going and their manners and their form and their movement and their the way they look and that type of thing. So a lot of people in the hunter world would make some excuses like, well, I'm not a big enough name. The judge doesn't, you know, he doesn't know me. I never sold horses to the people he knows. He, so I, they, that's why I'm not getting prizes. But if you horse show enough, not every judge is going to be that way. In fact, very few are going to be that way. Generally, the best horses are winning. And if you can't see it that way and say, how can I be better? How can I be more competitive? then uh, I think it's just a character flaw, to be honest. So if you want to be better, you really need to just observe what are the people that are winning doing. In fact, I used to have on my on my Facebook page, the banner that I had at the top for my group was sit with the winners, the conversation is different. Mm-hmm. And that just means, you know, when you pay attention to what the people that are winning doing, are doing. They're not complaining and bad-mouthing people. They're talking about real substantial things. And so when people are talking about why they're not winning and complaining about the people that are beating them or the people that are have a more successful dog training business and, and talking trash about them, that's not what the winners are talking about generally. The people that are at a high level, they're generally, you know, I've been fortunate enough to work with Olympians and, and people that have shown at the international level. And I honestly can't say I knew many that were not just very generous, nice people that were happy to share their information. 
because they had true confidence about what they knew. It's the people that are usually just a couple of rungs below that don't have the true confidence and they feel like they need to kind of bring people down to feel a little bit better about themselves. And so that's kind of a trait, you know, that you notice. And of course, you see that on the in the Facebook groups and stuff. And I think that the people, if they knew what a red flag that was, they might not do it as much. <laughs> So, but when you were talking about feeling uncomfortable with the feelings you get when people are praising you all the time, for me personally, it didn't feed my ego. It made me feel, again, made me feel a little uncomfortable because I knew what it was like to be successful because you know that you are producing quality. The horses I competed at, you know, the horses weren't winning by mistake. If I was winning, it was winning because I had the best horse in the class and that was, or the one that had the best go. So when people would, if someone tells me, are you really, that's amazing. You're the dog whisperer. I, I generally am going to downplay it a little bit. Like, come on, it's, it's not rocket science. You can do it too. You just don't know the information yet. You just need to learn the information and you'll be able to do it just like that too. Mm-hmm. So this is really interesting to me because it's making me think about your post and especially the way me and Glenn discussed it in quite a different light now, actually, I hadn't really considered the idea that the average fairly new in-home behavior mod person is getting so much smoke blown up their ass by the client and how that can affect their trajectory and what they do Mm. and where they go. Mm. And I suppose it adds some weight to the importance of being a part of the industry, I suppose, because you don't know what you don't know. And so I think that that certainly from my own personal experience, you know, it's probably the only lens I can really observe it through is that my initial mentors and dog training were incredible, you know, like these exceptional Mm -hmm. trainers that I still to this day aspire to even hold a candle to. And so when you convince a dog not to jump on the counter or not to pull on the leash and someone says that you're amazing, I had a reference point (laughs) and I was like, no, I'm not. But I suppose if you're not plugged in to the rest of the industry, you could genuinely believe that your skill set was much higher than it were like, and, and really genuinely believe it and not with a, a sense of arrogance or delusion of grandeur or anything like mm-hmm. that, I think that it's quite reasonable to think that someone might perceive themselves as being of a much higher skill set than they are. Especially because their skills aren't being compared directly to anyone else's skills. Yeah, They're just alone. Exactly. Yeah. And I think the biggest risk of that that I see, because, you know, at the end of the day, if you're just doing the same kind of pet dog stuff, like, sweet, if people are happy with your work, there's no issue there. But I suppose one of the problems is complacency, I guess, you know, and I certainly found a little bit of a trap for myself when I was doing a lot of pet dog stuff. I sort of began to resent pet dog owners just a little bit and their dogs a little bit as well. Not that I'm admitting to doing this, but certainly there's a lot of draw to just the quick fixes because, you know, like I know how to fix this rather than going explaining to the people how to change the lifestyle doing the right implementation of the dog, building the bond and and getting the motivation correct before you do anything else. I can see how this is actually, yeah, my mind's been going wild while you've been talking, thinking about specific individuals I can think of and who I have allocated to a category in my mind of being arrogant or shitty trainers. When in reality, the truth is they might just be ignorant rather than arrogant. They might truly have no idea where they fit into the scheme of things because they don't have a a reference point against it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The whole basis of the original post that brought this to light was about ethics. And, you know, when we first start talking about it, it's easy to, to confuse ethics and morals. 
So if, mm. if something's unethical, it has to do with the professionalism of it, you know, and if something's immoral, it's just wrong either way. So if you are abusing a dog, hanging it by, you know, because it got out of a down and choking it out, it's wrong whether you do that to your dog or someone's paying you to do it. Mm-hmm. But when you're talking about ethics, if you take a dog, your own dog, and it's reactive to the neighbor's dog, and every day for two years, you walk it past and sprinkle some kibble on the floor and go back to your house, you're just wasting your time. But if mm-hmm. you do that, and someone's paying you to do that, that's unethical. Mm-hmm. You're taking someone's money for getting no results. If there's no self-reflection And that was the one place as I was listening to your podcast, when you were talking about my post, I was kind of pushing back, (laughs) listening to it. Because yes, it's true that the people that are horrible people that are doing really bad things, stealing money from people and intentionally, and then changing their business name and moving to another state, they are not listening to this podcast. They're not looking to be better. They're looking to make money quickly. But I think that you can be unethical without knowing it. I think there are plenty of people that have the best intentions and they love training and they really want to help people, but they are not taking a clear look at what they are providing for what people are paying for. And so we see this with, you know, with my Facebook group, we do want to be a supportive group for trainers to come and talk and discuss things. But that doesn't mean that you respond to every question someone has with you go girl. We all feel like that sometimes. Mm. If you're taking the clients, and you are physically ill the night before go-home sessions every single time, that's not imposter syndrome. That's not anything other than you should not be taking money for training those dogs. If you're getting shaky results, if your clients are always upset, if you always are nervous, it doesn't matter how much you love doing it. You shouldn't be taking money. You need to be, and, and if the best you can do is introducing puppy lessons or guiding people or doing really low level things, there is this place for you in the industry. And it's a really important place because people like yourself, you're not going to want to do those baby puppy classes. You know, you're doing bigger things, you know, and so there's a place for people like that. And, you know, back to the the horse world comparison, you know, when you first get started in the, in the horse business, you ride you know, made up horses, you're not training baby horses, you're giving lessons to kids that just started riding, you're doing very easy things that the bigger trainers don't want to (laughs) do, you know, but there's a place for you, you can climb the ladder that way. But I think just like with training dogs, your foundation level needs to be flawless. And if you never get beyond the foundation level, there's still a place for you in the industry. But you need Mm -hmm. to take each step and get the best you can be at that thing. And then you can make be the best you can be at the next level. But I think people are are skipping to the top of the ladder at 50%. And then what's the client have when they're done? The client has 25%, maybe, if they're lucky. Mm. And now they've, because somebody's already paid for it, it's gone. They already kind of forgot about it. And now the client is left without money in their bank account and they've wasted time, you know? Mm. So I don't know what your thoughts are on that, if it sounds a no, little harsh. I'm enjoying this a lot, Tracy. You're really making me think because I think I've misinterpreted some of your posts, I think. And now, you know, that's why we've got you on. I know that when we discuss things with people, like I can only imagine what it would be like if if a post I made was being torn apart by, or not torn apart, <laughs> no, but, but discussed fine. by people and there's no, there's no way to interject. You're stuck in your car kicking the dashboard over it. But now talking to, I'm thinking, because I kind of think in opposites a little bit in that I get more frustrated at trainers in the industry that won't grow. That, that's my biggest 
bugbear. You know, I've had people come to four and five seminars of mine and not still feel like they're ready to own a Malinois. You know what I mean? And then I get a phone call from some guy who says, hey, man, I watched John Wick last week and I bought a Malinois and now I need your help with it. And they turn out great. And, you know, I I put myself into that category. I was in the army, saw a military working dog. I was like, I'm buying one of these. And then was like, oh, shit, I don't know what to do. And so sometimes that turns out pretty good. And my bugbear is is less about the, I guess it's because it's what I see more of. I think that because I, I coach a lot of people that I'm like, come on, you're ready. Like you need to do more. And and they hear people like us and they read posts like yours and they hear these complaints about people moving too quickly or not being competent. And they're afraid of being that, you know, there's big name dog trainers that put up like vague booking posts. That's just designed to sell stuff. And every time they do that, it hits me in the heart. And I think, fuck, they're talking about me without a doubt. Like this is totally targeted at me. And maybe it is, I, I don't know. But then there's there's people who listen to us and the, like and this conversation about like you know, people who haven't really developed a foundation and you don't have the base level be, and you really shouldn't be taking on more complex things. And I know that there's people who are listening to that going, oh my God, they're talking about me. I, I have to stay in my lane. And we're not, we're not at all. You know, like uh, I think that there's there's so many people I get frustrated by who are so good but won't acknowledge it because they're so worried that they're in that category. And that's the true, I guess that's the true imposter syndrome, I suppose. That's the true, like people who are so good and proficient at the thing that they do, but they're frustrated by it and they want to progress, but they're too scared to do it. So I suppose we have the same problem, but maybe at opposite ends, you know, it's almost the same issue, but it's just represented through different people. Yeah. I mean, I think that you know, when you do a lot of seminars and I've been to lots of clinics with horse trainers and stuff, and I do see that there are people there to learn. And then there are people there to win the clinic. They're there because they want to win the seminar. They want mm-hmm. the stroke from the the person and they really aren't listening to try to get better. They just want to hear, they want a big name person to say their name mm-hmm. and they want a big name person to tell them that they're doing it right. Good and observation. they're really not looking to change anything. Mm. Really good observation. But I think it's a matter of being self-aware because I know I've been guilty of that. When I was younger, uh, because I didn't always ride it at places that were really advanced or in the early days, I was always the best rider. And it didn't mean I was anything great. I just was better than all of the people that didn't ride well at all. You know, Mm. and so when I would go to a clinic or I would go ride with a new person, I would be a little bit of the star in the beginning. And I got kind of into that. But then once I started competing a lot and realizing that I really did not know very much and I wasn't a great writer yet, I needed lots more experience. Then I was wanting to learn. Then my ears were open. I wasn't there just because I wanted to go get attention from somebody that was a big name. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the difference and and not to bring a different Facebook post in, but I did a post about six months ago about the difference between imposter syndrome and just not being ready to train yet. And I think that the difference would be imposter syndrome is fleeting. Everybody feels a little doubt here and there. I mean, of course, you get a dog that, you know, is way softer than you've ever worked with before. And it's, you know, you thought you're being nice to it and its tail still between its legs. And all of a sudden you start thinking, oh, did I do something wrong? Am I, you know, that type of thing. But it goes away. As soon as you start getting into your groove, your confidence comes back because it's, it is imposter syndrome. It's just a fleeting thing. But if it's constant, if you're always 
wondering, how am I going to fix this? I need to get my act together before the people come pick up the dog and and worried. And, and if you find yourself complaining constantly that the people aren't following through, well, if the people aren't following through constantly, there's either a problem with the delivery or a problem with the way you've trained the dog. If you're not able to provide consistent results that last for people, you know, there's always going to be people that drop the ball here and there, but it shouldn't be the norm. If it's the norm, you're not doing your job. Mm. So I think that people need to set their bar a little higher. And, you know, I I understand that there are people out there with low self-esteem and they don't feel like they need a little push. You know, yes, you're good enough. But for the most part, I think that if people know what they're doing, they're confident in their ability. They don't need somebody to to nurse them along. And if you're still in that place, you need to go apprentice with somebody that's going to help you. So you will learn real confidence because people are not paying you to learn on the job. They're not paying you to gain their confidence with their dog because their dog is their one dog. We've mm-hmm. got hundreds of dogs, but their dog is their only dog. So we need to do the best we can for that individual. Some good points, Tracy. Some very good points. There's a lot that happened since that post. And incredibly, because I manage the Instagram account for the Canine Paradigm, I get to see a lot of the messages. People are having conversations with me about the show through that portal It was incredible how many people were sending me messages about it saying that post, that episode you guys did, all of that really got me thinking and got me feeling that I need to do more, but it also got me out of a rut that I'm in. It kind of created a call to action where people were reaching out. We were having some good back and forth over it. What I gleamed from that was people felt that they were unworthy, that they weren't helping, they were basically a bit of a false prophet. However, they did a bit of a reanalysis on their entire holistic program that they were offering and realized their deficit in where they needed to pick their act up or really needed to look into further education. But they also realized that they were worthy and they were helping and that people were coming back to them and saying, it is making a difference. It's making my life easier. Right. And there's a good phrase that says, action speaks louder than words. There's a lot of times where people make incredulous claims, like they get on social media and they make these outrageous and incredulous claims, like they really puff themselves up and sell themselves. And that's part of marketing. You know, that's part of Mm -hmm. rising above and being noticed and making people want to come to your platform and buy your product or be tipped into your funnel. However, some of those people, they don't really care. As you said, as we know, you know, I've seen evidence over that of three decades in this field. There's been so many people who have come in and gone out just as fast. And there's people that last. There's people that really do care. And there's other people that leave because they care so much that they do burn out fast. And they're hit in the fields hard and they never feel like they're making a difference. They never feel like they're worthy. Yet they're some of the most worthy people I've ever known. It's just that they feel things so much that it really hits them hard and it really has a massive impact on them. We are talking before, there's some incredible trainers out there, really people who have risen above, they've got big names, and some of those people are absolutely fantastic trainers, but they're fucking horrible people. And <laughs> it kind of sits in a camp of great trainer, horrible person, average trainer, great person, great trainer, great person. It's hard to find that last category sometimes because sometimes the desire to be a great trainer means that it seeps into your personality and the type of person you are. 
I mean, there's been some people that I've just marveled at their work and I've just thought, you're a magician, you're magical. The things that you can do are just way above what I've seen. But spend five minutes with that person and realize they're an empty shell. Like they've got nothing. They've literally hollowed out every part of their life to become who they were. It's kind of like making a deal with the devil where you just say, I need to be this most amazing person, but your soul is gone. You're a horrible shell of a person. And a good mentor for me is not just that fictitious person. Like I want the entire deal. I want to know that I'm being coached by somebody who really gives a damn, but is a good person at the end of the day. Like everything is in it. Like the entire investment is in this program. And the reason I say that is because I'm, I was in fear of becoming that person that I was describing before, you know, like I was doing things well that people were happy about, but I didn't really want to spend time with people. I just wanted to get their money and literally vanish onto the next prospect. And that's because I was attracted to that type of person at the beginning, but now I'm not. Now I've done a, a 180 about it. Now I want the entire deal. I want my cake and eat it as well as far as I want to know how to do it well, but I also want to know that this person is a good person at the end of the day. That when I have a conversation about them, they're not that person that we described before that is just tearing other people down or they disappear into the sunset as soon as they've got your cash. What's their family life like? You know, like how do the people around them relate to them? What are they like with their own dogs? That all matters to me now. Like that really does matter. Larry Crone was having a good talk about this. Some of the people in the industry who are really cannibalizing each other. And Pat and I have been speaking frequently about this over the last couple of weeks because there are people in this industry who go to training to actually look at what the trainers are doing and to have conversations, as you said, with those horse people, you know, the winner's circle where they're all looking around and they're looking at the prospect of how do we make this better? What are those small increments? What are the tweaks that we need to do to, to make the work better, to make this more meaningful for the dog and the handler and the team? How do we improve on this? And there are other people who are basically circling the wagons and their sport is destroying other people. That's what they're doing. And that's what this industry needs less of. I'm making a call to action to trainers out there and people out there who listen to this podcast. If you're in the latter circle, if you're in that group of people who are sitting around destroying other people and you're a new trainer and you're being invested into that, really have a think about what you're doing and what it means to your future because you will become a pariah at one stage. Some of these people have the energy to go forward and to take their dirty act on the road and, and do well with it because that's the type of person they are. But you may not. Like that may be the end for you and all doors will close in your face after that. And I've seen mm -hmm. that so many yes. times where good people who would have started out well, if only they went to the other group and sat around and watched the work and got invested in that, that would have really carved out their future instead of being with those malicious, horrible people that they don't care about you. All they want is they just want to recruit another group of haters into their hateful group and keep spewing more hateful lava over everybody else. Please, for the love of God, please don't align yourself with that group. Get into this organization. Stay with the people who are working. Stay with the good people this really means something for the longevity of this entire industry. Really good points you're making. And, you know, after when I first saw that that you guys had picked up my my post and were talking about it, my first thought was, wow, that's pretty cool. And after that, I thought, oh, well, I guess they're probably going to wonder what I, what's the solution? You know, I mean, I'm just throwing out a bunch of points there. 
or do you have any, is there any point to the whole thing? And, you know, I think the answer to all of this, fixing the problem of, of ethics would be community, good community. Mm. And, and it is real, uh, you know, there's junk food and health food when it comes to how you interact with other trainers and the junk food is talking trash about people and being nasty and the customer is the enemy and making money and all of those kind of icky things that, that get a reaction right away. Those are the short-term quick response things that people feed off of. The health food is reaching out to people, helping people, you know, being kind to a, to a starter trainer that does really want to get better because I get, I get people all the time messaging me with the Facebook group saying, you know, oh, you got to get rid of these, you know, we're not here to train young trainers, you know, they need to learn on their own. And this group should be about working professionals. And it, and it is, but I mean, they're still working professionals. If they work at Petco and they're doing lessons, it's still a working professional. And if they're looking to get better, we should reach out and help them. And so I, I made a point on the, the post at one point about not pulling up the rope because it's, it's an easy thing for people. They get to a certain point in their in the business and they do want to shut down the starter trainers and they do want to say, now I'm in the club, so let's close the door. If we do want people to have high expectations of themselves, they're not born knowing it. They need, if they don't have the confidence, it's not a character flaw. It's that they need better information and they need to feel better about their training organically so they can be a better trainer. So it's not about just saying, he's a crap trainer, he's not doing it. Maybe he just doesn't know anything. You know, maybe he just needs um, more support like that. So I am really, really positive about people wanting to learn. Absolutely. I do want people to learn. I also want them to have high expectations of themselves. So I don't have a lot of patience for people that will make a post on, on social media and say, hey, I've got a press a canario that keeps slipping out of his harness. What should I do? Well, what you should do is you shouldn't be taking that case. I think that you need to learn a little bit more. That's that's out of your realm. And then if the person is offended by that, then that really tells me they shouldn't be doing it. So we all need to kind of have a, a community where we can support each other, but we also can tell each other real truths that they might not want to hear. You know, mm -hmm. people might not want to hear those things, but they need to. And if they really want to take themselves, they want to take their business to the next level or they want to be taken seriously, you have to open your ears to people that are going to say things like, you don't have a relationship with that dog. I could have started huffed and puffed and said what a jerk Fabian was when he said that to me, but he was right. I needed to learn how to join up with dogs and have them respond to me organically and not just because I'm conditioning something. Mm. Yeah, I needed to learn to be better. And I think we all need to do that. We don't need to help each other. Sometimes in our space, we forget that all of us kind of have to wear two hats at times, especially in our online presence. I see people get mad about the ads of other dog trainers. And I think one of the things that I, I mention it all the time, but I think that's really peculiar about our industry is how we're all friends with each other on Facebook. You know, accountants don't do that shit. Like you go to your professional things, you may be on an email list or whatever, but the idea of like just randomly friending other accountants on Facebook, it's just not a thing, right? Or following other accountants online. Like you might have a look at your local competitor or whatever, or someone that you aspire to be like, but just following other people who are your peers in their work, it's pretty unique to us, I think. I'm sure that there's other industries, but they're not common. And I think that we sometimes forget that we have two 
spaces online, one that is for our clients and we have to market ourselves and we have to say that we're good. Otherwise, why would they like, you know, you, you can't as a, as a professional, if you're trying to get normal dog training pet clients in your local area, you know, within your catchment, you can't get yourself online and go, Hey, I'm pretty okay at this. I'm putting in the work. No, I'm, I'm still attending events. I'm doing my best. I'm striving to better myself. You're not the one that's going to get the work when they look at your website that says that or your Facebook post, your business, whatever. If you're positioning yourself as a forever student needing to learn all the time and and being really honest and humble about where you fit into the, the situation in the bigger industry, you're not getting any work compared to the guy who's also within your catchment that says, I'm the best in the area. Here's my self-congratulating thing. Because you kind of, like, there has to be a middle ground, of course, but I think that's what we forget. And I see people, you know, sometimes people will send, like somebody who I have trained or I'm working with or who I know their skill level, got a very, you know, accurate level of where they're at. And they're a good trainer. They're very good at what they do, but they're looking to up themselves. And then somebody else, you know, in the past has sent me their ads where they're talking themselves up. And I'm like, but mate, that ad's not for you. They're not interested in training your pet dog because you know what you're doing. It's not pitched for you. It's pitched for a person who doesn't know what they're doing. And you just happen to fall into the advertising catchment because you also fit the lookalike audience. You know, it's hard. That's one of the things I think is really tricky with dog training is that it's quite difficult to filter your competitors and peers out of any advertising that you do because they're going to fall into that. They're going to have the right hobbies and interests. They're going to be following the right pages. They're going to be fitting the lookalike of your actual audience or your actual customer. Your competitors are going to be falling into that. They're going to see your ads and you have to position yourself as a person that's worthwhile investing in. So I think that sometimes we in the industry can be, now I'm in total support of everything we're saying about people need to bettering themselves and all of that. But I think sometimes we can be a little bit rough on each other sometimes For and sure. nowhere near as supportive as I think we sometimes need to be. We had someone have a hissy fit years ago in our Facebook group about exactly as you said, like young trainers asking too many questions. And it was the lines of like, if that's a question you've got to ask, then you really have no business training dogs. Uh, yes, and it's like, yes. okay, that might be true, but they have asked the question. So we now are at a decision point of, do we answer it for them? Or do we just go, fuck you, you have no business doing this? You know, like now we've got to make a choice. And I think you have to sit with your choices. I think sometimes I see people say, these people are asking too basic a questions. They shouldn't be training dogs. And then you go, okay, no worries. That's how you feel about it. But what are you doing to assist those people along? You know, because if you consider yourself a source of that information, do you have that available to sell to these guys or are you willing to put in the time to give it to them? Because they've expressed to you that they're looking for that information. Of course, that's the go-to these days. And again, to remove it from dogs so that people don't get upset. When I started learning how to use cameras, I got into all the forums. I was that guy asking all the fucking stupid questions. I, and I got abused by people in camera groups for not knowing the difference between what NTSC and PAL is, which is like the frequency at which the camera functions so that lights don't flicker and it's different in different countries. Like, I don't fucking know any of that. And I asked all these dumb questions. And because I was in these professional level camera groups, people are like, you have no business owning an R5. Like, and I'm like, well, mate, I do. So where can I get help on this? And then you know what happened? The guy PM me and said, hey man, I've got a course on that whole camera if you like. It's six bucks. And I was like, here it is. Here's my $6 on how to set up that camera because I'm looking for the answers. I'm not looking to get abused for not knowing it. 
And I think yeah, that's difference... where we kind of fall into with dogs a little bit is that right. we just get mad at people without going. They are If they're asking, they're looking for the answer. Right. But the difference is you weren't calling, you weren't going on those forums and saying, hey, listen, I just got booked to photograph a wedding at sunset. Can someone tell me how I go about doing that and what lenses I should use? Yeah, you know, if yeah, you're just doing it point. for yourself, you could ask sure. all sorts of questions. I mean, I totally understand because I'm adminning this page all the time and reading all these questions. If somebody says, I've got a German Shepherd and it is whining and it's got this and this is what I've tried, this, 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 and this. I've never been training a dog 20 years. I've just never seen one like this. That's no problem at all. Let's discuss it all day long. But if somebody says, I've got a, an aggressive St. Bernard that I have in board and train and he won't come out of his kennel and he's been like that for two days. Should you be accommodating that and saying, mm. oh, yes, this is what you do? No, somebody is paying you real money to train that dog. We can talk about it, but we can't walk you through it while you take money for something you're not ready to be doing. Mm. So I think it just depends on, again, it's the self-awareness. It's not about gatekeeping information. It's just being mm. self-aware about what you really should be doing. And you have to constantly keep in mind that that is someone's money they are giving you and yeah. they're trusting you with their dog. You know, I don't want to sound like a snob about it because honestly, <laughs> the dogs I train are the most simple pet dog situations, I try to keep it as dumbed down as possible because I know what people are looking for. As pet owners, they want a dog they can take to the beach. When they call their name, it comes back. When they open the door, it doesn't jump on people. And that's really about it. There's just not that much that people are actually wanting from pet dogs. Of course, you yeah. run into all of the you know, behavior problems that keep those things from happening. And you have to know how to negotiate that. But you know, again, I don't want to sound like a snob about it because I really appreciate when people want to learn and get better. Yeah. I think that the most important thing is that they are self-aware and they're honest about wanting to learn more and see where they're at on on the spectrum I talked about. You know, mm -hmm. if your uh, your experience and your knowledge base and your talent level, because there's plenty of room for everybody. There's lots yeah. of room for different people, and there's more business than anybody can. You know, we should be competing. So none of this is about like, I want all the business because I don't want much business at all. I don't like working that hard. I just like having <laughs> a few dogs to train. You know? No, I agree. I agree totally. Tell me a little bit about the Facebook group itself and your experience with admitting that, like putting that many dog trainers under one roof. You know, our Facebook group is very eclectic group. We have people that are in there to this morning. I was looking like saying that punishment should never, ever be used. And there's only fallout from it. And yeah, we've got the full spectrum. Uh, we've got people who have nothing to do with dogs and just listen to the show. I always assume that people that listen to our show would be at the minimum dog training enthusiasts and more likely professionals. But I get emails from people. Every time I say that, I get an email from someone. I'm like, no, nah. like, I just listened to the show and I'm in your Facebook group and I have nothing to do. I have a dog, but I have nothing to do with the industry or whatever. So we've got a really broad spectrum, which right. means we can't run that tight a ship because it's so broad, but yours right. is not. Right. You, tell me a little bit about your experience of managing that and the ups and downs that you've experienced that. Have there yes. been days where you're like, oh, fuck this group, I'm deleting yeah. it? Or <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, basically, uh, I don't get too worried about it. I don't, I don't take it too seriously, but... When I was training horses, we used to go, you know, the trainers, we would all go out to dinner together and stuff. And I remember one time, one of the trainers brought an amateur with her and we were like, are you kidding me? What are we going to talk about with this lady here? I did leave it open to kind of the amateur trainer, meaning they could be a trainer if they wanted to. They just don't 
want to, you know, they have the talent to do it. Maybe they compete in dog sports and stuff. I really try to keep it pared down to working professionals so we can have those conversations. And it's funny because if there's a post where we're kind of having a laugh about something just kind of funny about the business, you know, maybe uh, something about clients, typical clients that say the same thing over and over, and someone gets a little bent out of shape about it. I go back to the membership questions, and it's always someone that's not a trainer. (laughs) So really, I just try to avoid it, spiraling it too ugly. I don't like people getting, occasionally people will bicker back and forth. I like the debate. I, I don't mind if it gets a little heated, I'll kind of keep an eye on it. But if people just start uh, name calling or getting really upset, I just delete it because I don't want it there. I don't want to set that tone. I want people to kind of mind their manners a little and uh, still have fun with it. Because really, at the end of the day, it's just a Facebook group. It's not that serious. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you meet lots of people and I've had people send me business and I send people business and we network. And again, you know, it, it does end up being a good place to have that community that's not there because pet trainers, you know, and dog trainers don't interact outside of seminars and the occasional, you know, groups. But I try not to take any of it too seriously, but I do try to run a tight enough ship so that people stay happy. Yeah. It seems that way. You know, I'm only peripherally involved. I'm not on Facebook a lot. I'm not online a lot. I post my stuff and I try to get off it because I have my own issues of social media. But I think one thing that happened to me years ago, I spoke about it one time on the show was there was, I was in a group, I can't remember what it was, but someone asked a question and they were getting cut down pretty badly. Mm-hmm. And I thought, uh, in line with what I just spoke about, I was like, no, this is a genuine person asking a genuine question. Like I'm going to answer it. And I had the time, you know, I had, I was waiting in line at something. And so I, I put a lot of work into a really detailed answer and then they deleted the post. <laughs> and I was like, you motherfucker. Like I just spent an hour, you know, like that's an expensive thing that you just deleted. I just spent an hour writing that and you got the feedback, you got the answer that you wanted. And like, I was very clear and sort of went through the steps and everything. And then she just went, okay, got that information. I don't want people to see in future. I'm not going to assign too much to emotives. I don't know why it happened, but it was deleted very quickly after I gave a, a poignant answer. And I was ropeable. Like I was so angry and not because <laughs> my comment led to it being deleted, but because I was like, I put a lot of work into that to hopefully help people to go into this one group. There's a random person. I don't know you. I don't know anything about you, but it's a good question. I thought that the question had been misinterpreted and overlooked by people. And I thought, no, there's a really good question in there. I'm going to answer it as well as I can. And then I got deleted. I was like, you motherfucker, like I'm done here because it just disappeared. And I was like, all my work just vanished. It was for nothing. And I, I wrote it, I stupidly wrote it directly into Facebook. So I didn't copy and paste it in. So I didn't even have it anymore. I was ropeable. And and it for me meant that I, I took quite a step back in my involvement in those kind of Facebook groups for that exact reason. So, you know, I'm as big a part of the problem that I've complained about as everybody else. That's for sure. Well, that's funny that you say that because that's one of my biggest pet peeves. If someone asks a question and people take the time to write out a big response and then they they sort of ghost the post, you know, they they don't come back probably because they don't like it's not what they were expecting to hear. I get upset about that too. I go on and I I make a little admin note like, listen, you took the time to make the post. You're clearly still here. At least for, have the courtesy of responding because these are people that that's their information is valuable. And mm. you would normally, what would you get paid an hour for that information? You took that time out to write it out. I think it's really rude just not even respond yeah. or you get like a K thanks, you know, afterwards. 
Yeah. Yeah. Good. Yeah. I mean, really good. Exactly. I, I totally agree with you there. And it's not like I would need feedback. I'm happy with someone just to acknowledge that they saw it. Just be like, got it. You know what I mean? I don't need to be thanked or anything. I, it was more that it just got deleted. And I was like, oh, anyway. Yeah. There's another point on that too. I think that when people do respond to some of these posts and they do put good work in, another form of support would be actually liking the post sometimes just to support and throw some weight about it. There's similar times where I've seen a post that somebody's put up and I've thought, I'm going to put some thought into that because it's a good post. I like the tempo of it and I'd like to respond to it, but I'd like to think on a little bit. And then when I get up in the morning, it's gone through the US and there's been some good traction on some of the posts already and the answer's already been there. So I kind of resigned myself to the fact of what am I going to add to this because I already agree with some of the key stakeholders that have already responded to this. All I'm going to do is like their post because now if I add to it, all it does is look like I'm trying to compete with those people where I have responded to some of those posts and said, I really appreciate what you said. I'm aligned with everything. I was thinking on that last night and I thought that was a really good response to the person's question. Now, it doesn't mean that I do that a lot because a lot of the times now I just press like, like I read through them and I say, yeah, that's good. I like what that person did. I'm going to throw my support behind that response because I really think it's good. So I feel that sometimes when I read some of the responses, they're repeating themselves over and over again by different people. And I kind of think, did you do that just because you did what Pat did, wrote a huge response out and felt like, oh, I'm committed to this now. I want to throw it up. Or are you just making your name out there? So you just want people to see, hey, I'm here, I'm relevant, and this is what I do. And either way, you know, like there's no real harm to it, but sometimes I just feel like it's been answered and yours is so parallel to what this is already doing it. Maybe just support the other person and say, hey, I like what you said. Right. We're aligned with our thinking. It's good. Here's a like and here's a thumbs up for me to say, like, I love what you're doing. Your work looks good. And maybe even I learned something from it as well. Right. No, and that's really a kind way to look at it too, because supporting people, I always say the the way you know that you have a good training video out on a dog page is that no one said anything. Mm. <laughs> because I, I see that all the time. People will just, it's obvious they just want to, you know, I do it too. You just want feedback or you want people to see that you're what you're doing or whatever. And then I see people post and nobody even likes it once. And I'm like, well, it's solid video, like, just like it, you know, show some appreciation. You don't need to comment or say that you would change this or whatever, but just a little acknowledgement that you saw it. But I, I agree with that too. Tracy, I've watched the sun go down behind you just there. We're probably running out of time. Tell me, where do you see the industry headed? What do you project for us all in the next five years? Well, good question. I think we've all, you know, I don't want to get into the subject of regulating the industry or anything like that. But I think if we don't get a handle on our community and getting people doing things the right way, we really could have that offered up for us if we don't tighten up a little bit, Agreed. especially with these. There's been a lot of posts out about these dog trainers that are abusive and and they make the news. And that's not every far from every dog trainer. It's very rare, but when that happens, it's out there. And things like, you know, conversation we have a lot on on the Facebook group is um, if you give free evaluations or something like that, you know, those are something we talk about a lot. And I always say, if you're not willing to take a dog and work it in front of the people, just during the evaluation, a lot of people say, I won't even touch the dog until they've paid me, but we're going to have to get a little bit more 
free with that, letting people see you work, show them your kennels or if or the dog is going to stay, other dogs you've trained. You, and, and lots of people say, oh, I don't want to tell anybody anything until they've, you can't give your information away. Well, yeah, you can. If you're okay mm-hmm. with it, if you're confident about what you know, you can tell people, give them a little bit of something so they can see what you're all about instead of this giant leap of faith, leaving their dog with you. And if yeah. we don't do that, we are going to be looking down the barrel of, of some tight regulation and it's not going to be the people that we want regulating us. I promise you it's not working dog trainers that will be making those. Well said. Those choices. And totally yeah, agree. Entirely. Yeah. Hey, Tracy, thanks for your time. This has been a really thought provoking conversation. I've Indeed. had a good time. You've made me think about some stuff in a way that I hadn't in the past, which makes me very happy. I thank you for that. Thank you. It was great talking to you guys. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Likewise. Do us a favor, plug all your stuff. Tell us how do people, if if you want anybody to get in contact with you, tell us how they can do that. What, how can people find out more from you? How can people touch you? Oh, thanks. I have a small dog training business in South Florida. It's called Canine Cross Training. I called it that because of the crossover from horses to dogs. It's nothing about flipping tires in a parking lot or anything like that. <laughs> so I, yeah, I just have that. I've got my Facebook page. I've got Canine Cross Training tutorial videos on, on Facebook. And that's about it. Nothing too exciting. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you very much for doing it. I appreciate you. So it was great talking to you. Tracy, do you have All any right. closing thought, anything, or do you feel that you've covered it already? Honestly, I just think we should just stay in touch and keep the community going and just try to, all the things we talked about, I think I'd just be repeating it. (laughs) Yeah, cool. (laughs) All right. Well, that's it for another episode of the Canine Paradigm. As always, if you like what you hear, just like, rate, share, subscribe, do it through whatever subscription service you download us from. Then go to another one, do it there too. They don't check. You're allowed to do it anywhere you want. And you can say anything you want as well, but please just say good stuff. Keep the other stuff to yourself. (laughs) If you want to support the show, you can do that by jumping into Patreon. Patreon is what keeps us going. It's what pays for all the equipment that we use. It's what pays for our hosting. It's what allows the show to grow and continue to serve it to you. So three bucks a month in there will get you access to this giant backlog of pretty good information. One thing that I was making a video for Patreon the other day and I was talking to the camera, which will be you guys, about how a lot of my first online course came from the info in the Patreon. And and so that course is down now. You can't buy it anymore, but uh, there's still a lot of the information is from the deep dives that we did in that Patreon of really detailed explanations of stuff. They're all still in there for three bucks a month. You can get access to those. There's new stuff going in and we do a live stream in there every month. We can ask questions and you can give as as much or as little as you want or not at all. We still love you anyway. Mm. Another way to support the show is to jump into spring. You can get yourself some cool merch, no socks, underpants or water bottles, but there is enormous giant tapestries and t-shirts and hoodies. Which people have got. Yeah. Bunch of other cool stuff that you can get. I think Mm. we had... Did we have thongs at one point? Was that one of the things that we could get? But, oh. oh no, that was that was that was a different thing that I was looking at. And I ordered a test pair and they were horrible. But never mind. <laughs> and, and and I mean thongs, the Australian kind, not the US kind. The Australian uh, kind of thong, which is oh, footwear. Yes. Yeah, imagine imagine that kind of thong. Wow. TCP thong. Yeah, well, yeah. I don't want to see it. If yeah. you've got one, Glenn, keep it to yourself. I don't want to see it. Furman would probably have one. <laughs> yeah, he probably does. Mm, yucky. 
So get into spring. What am I up to? Oh, if you want to get in contact with us, you can jump into the Facebook discussion group there. As we've said, there's 10,000 people in there all getting along pretty well. It's definitely a space to discuss topics of the show or anything that you think that's going on in the industry. And I do highly recommend that you jump into Tracy's group, the Dog Trainers Lounge. If you Mm. are a professional trainer, if you meet the requirements of that group, I think that it's wonderful. I'm peripherally involved and I, I would like to be more involved when time allows me to, I will be. But if you want to get in contact with us directly, you can shoot us an email. We are info at canineparadigm.com. Love you. Goodbye.